Anyway, I think I'm in now. And it's really, really good to be with you. Um, Stephen alluded to the fact that I've been here. It's actually about over 50 years. It's very, very different. There's not a single lady with a hat on here. In my day, there was not a single lady without a hat. We had to wear our head covered. And uh, we used to come to After Eight. I was in the youth group at St. Mary's Church in Weymouth, and we used to come and go out onto the streets and try and draw young people in to, um, to hear the gospel message. So very happy days. We had a marvellous fellowship of young people right across the board. <clears throat> anyway, what an encouragement to us. We, it's, it's great to have times of uh, worship and fellowship like this today. Uh, it isn't the experience of many, many Christians across our country. And um, well, we just come back from Spring Harvest. Our daughter said, would she would like to go with her there? And we had such encouragement there. I think uh, some of the music got a bit loud, much, much louder than this. <laughs> after being very loud, they said, and now we'll make it louder, shall we? <laughs> and the drums, I was, we were bouncing up and down. I could feel the vibrations through the whole of this tent. 3,000 people bouncing up and down. Anyway, it was, it, was, it was a great thing. And listening to this morning, and I only told last, uh, Stephen last night, I think he got it this morning, what I was going to speak about, because he said to me, whatever you want to, Dick, because we've just finished the series, and I usually like to be told what to do, because then I can focus my mind and thoughts on that. But Easter is such a tremendous time. Three weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And since then, in our little Bible study group, little home group, we have been looking at some of the appearances of Jesus to the, the disciples. And it's, it's just an amazing message. And every time we go through these well, seven, say, seven um, uh, revelations of Jesus to his, uh, appearings of Jesus, risen, risen Jesus to his disciples, there is something to be said to deeply, deep course, deep, deep in my heart. And I was just amazed that all the songs and the hymns, the words, the encouragements, the challenges that were here, were what I wanted to say this morning. So I'm going to go and sit down now because I think it's all, it's all been done. Well, we were looking at, uh, sorry, because I'm one of those people who likes alliteration, you see. And I said, we, so we looked at the seven deadly dangers that Jesus overcame when he, uh, we say we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us who died and rose for us. Now, this we share in this experience of victory, not triumphalism. I think that was uh, hinted at in one of the words that was given. It could be very shallow. Triumphalism focuses on me and what I've done, what I've done for the Lord or whatever. But the victory of Christ focuses on him. I am more than conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. That's the great thing. So we looked at overcoming death. He, he, he rose again. Overcoming difficulties is a great stone in the way. Uh, looking over the depre depression, Mary weeping at the tomb. Overcoming disappointment, the two on the road to a mayor saying, oh, we'd hoped this guy was going to liberate us from the Romans. Uh, looking at doubt, Thomas. Oh, Thomas was a doubter. They all were. Did you hear anybody, any one of Jesus' disciples, come up to him and say, oh, Lord, so good to see you. We knew that you were, were coming back. You told us about it on the third day. No, they were utterly amazed. They're all doubters. So um, 
And, and desperation, we heard in the catching no fish, although they were seasoned fishermen and they caught nothing. And finally, the defeat that Peter felt when he had failed his Lord and denied him three times. <clears throat> we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Now, I wonder, well, that's where I'm ending up with, that, that occasion of, of, of Peter's sense of failure. And I wonder if you've ever felt that you failed someone by your words or your deeds, or you failed your Lord or, or denied him at some point, point of weakness, and I should have spoken up for him, and I didn't. Well, I felt that on numbers of occasions, and one, once it, dis, um, it caused me to leave the ministry as a young minister and seeing God at work, actually, but I didn't see it. I could only see the things I did wrong. And after a year on this hard, tough estate where he was in Bristol, I eventually said, I'm, I'm going to have to leave. I wasn't sleeping at night. I was crying and uh, disappeared. And someone suggested that I would go to Lee Abbey for a, a while, and I went there. And I thought, my ministry is over. I couldn't see anything in the future. I thought, perhaps I'll be a social worker, whatever. And during that time, God touched my heart and said, gave me this desire, this longing, even though there was so much pain, to go back into ministry. To cut a long story short, as a result of the next few months, I eventually went to uh, a, a very big church. Uh, the minister in charge there invited me to come and share at Walcott in Bath. There was over 100 students in the congregation, etc., and we saw wonderful things happening. And it doesn't really matter that they, you, you spell out that, they were. Every, well, it seemed almost every day. I was only there five months, just filling in a gap to see whether I could come back into ministry again. Every day someone was converted or baptized in the Spirit or healed. I was just up here, and they were so encouraging. There were people in that church who was so loving and encouraging to me, and it re restored my faith and pointed me back to the, the Lord. And when I came to, to Weymouth, it's the last place I wanted to, go, to come to. I think I've been working in the East End of London and places like Wolverhampton and Preston and Lancashire, and, you know, oh, tough estates in Bristol. Things like that I, my experience had been. And he's, I said, only soft people going back to seaside resorts like Weymouth. But that's where this, this low self-worth had started. And rather like Moses picking up the snake after some years in the desert, which is a symbol of Egypt, he said, you've got to grasp it. You've got to come to terms with the things that you felt. I don't want to go back to where I'll feel like I did before, you know. And so it's important. And I think this story of, of Simon Peter is an amazing way of addressing that sense that we sometimes, or some of us anyway, have. He was called Simon and Jesus had called him uh, to himself and said, I'll give you a new name, Peter, the rock, rock man. And we see his failure and we say, this man, he's leaving in charge of his church. He's the man who's going to be the spokesman on, on Pentecost and bring 3,000 to Christ. Never. And yet, the wonderful thing about this is, and this particular passage is the way in which Jesus takes him on one side quietly and speaks to him and reassures his heart that you 
I, will, I want to use you. When I went back to him, the, the, the words that came to my mind, uh, into my heart and mind, I heard as if it was an audible voice, Jesus saying, Dick, please don't compare, which is what happened before, compare yourself with other people who are more talented than you, more gifted than you, more has been achieved through them. Just love me and love people. That's all I want you to do. I'm not looking at your talents or your gifts. I'm looking at your love, the love in your heart. Believe me, I was amazed to see that as love grips the hearts of his people, there's reproduction. This amazing quality of love draws people to see the risen Jesus and come to him. Now, just imagine this scene. I should say, John wrote this uh, as an appendix to his gospel because his dear friend Peter had already died, I think. And he wanted to, to seal, to, to tell about this martyrdom and how Jesus had said to him that he would, um, that he would die for him. So it's uh, an amazing uh, outpouring of John's heart to say Peter, in the end, sealed his glorious ministry dying for Jesus, probably on a cross. Anyway, imagine the scene. In, the, in obedience to Jesus' instructions, he has said to them, go to Galilee and wait for me there. They went back to the gate and, and were there at the side of the lake. And every headland and inlet was filled with precious memories. There he healed that person. There he spoke to a, thousand, a few thousand people. And there he... I'm from a boat on one occasion. There he put the fish in the net. There he um, drew individual people to himself and gave them self-worth. All sorts of things occurred to them as they did that. And now the circumstances were different. Um, they were poor. No, no, they had no money. The livelihood had gone when their jobs uh, to when Jesus had called them to uh, follow Jesus or him. And now he had gone to wait for me. But patience, um, patience wasn't um, Peter's second name, like, like me. You think, oh, what's he doing? He's not going to come back. So he said, Let's, he said to his six of his friends, his, the other disciples, said, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, we'll come with you. And they took up this task. Like someone who has relinquished the task for many years, takes it up in excitement, saying, we'll go back to fishing. The evening breeze was fragrant with the myriad flowers of spring, the meadows and mountain pastures aglow with color. The lake lay dimpling in the warm sunset, and the boats and the nets were available. And with eager excitement, they went out, pushed out from the shore to go fishing that night. Darkness stole down the mountains, and the lights along the shore went out, and the stars came out, and there was silence across the lake, only broken by the drawing in and out of the, the nets and the oars as they rowed through the water. But when the grey morning began to dawn, they caught nothing. 
You can imagine their sense of frustration and disappointment and sense of failure. But it's often our failure that is God's opportunity. They didn't recognize the figure standing on the white sandy shore, enwrapped in the golden shimmer of the early morning mist. Possibly it was some early fish dealer. And he called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? They must have felt so angry. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> oh, well, why don't you cast your net on the other side? Actually, it's, no, it's interesting to note there's a sermon in this. Cast it on the right side. <laughs> Sometimes we don't catch fish because we don't follow Jesus' commands to, to fish where he wants, the right place to fish. And we're fishing in the wrong place, following our own instinct rather than his command. But his authoritative and quiet and gentle voice made them respond immediately. And they were absolutely amazed at the miraculous catch of fish. So many that they couldn't draw in them into the boat at that time. And John, in his own inimitable way, his sensitive, loving spirit said, to Peter, it's the Lord. Nobody doubted it. With that, Peter leaps over the side of the boat and goes the hundred yards. He must have swam over it, I think, to, to the shore to be first there. The boat's followed. And I wonder if Jesus had put those fish in that net to remind, to, to, to help them to see that it was him and to remind them that they were called to fish for people not to fish for fish. Interestingly, John recalls that there were 153 big fish. And that's the Jewish tradition was that there were 153 nations in the world. Go into all the world, to every nation, and make disciples, said Jesus. So he wanted them not to look back to their old task, but to look forward to see the way in which they could be used to bring his wonderful message of love to the whole nation, to the nations of the world. And he'd already made and prepared a breakfast for them, and he, he wanted them to add a few fish to it. And it's, isn't it interesting that Jesus, and I, oh, we were so moved by some of the things we heard at Spring Harvest, like the mercy ships and other initiatives that were taken across the world. And we do it every time we pray every morning uh, for our missionary friends and links. We're moved to tears sometimes by the amazing things that they're doing, which is leading people to Jesus. But they're meeting their physical needs in a most compassionate way. And Jesus wanted them to be physically fed before he challenged them about their spiritual health. I think that's a lesson to be learned. That's why I think Alpha is so, so great. They give, we give the people food, food first. He goes, oh, we can cut out the meal. No. It's an amazing way in which it links you into, into people and they feel satisfied and they come and they can listen to the scriptures <clears throat> and the, the message of the gospel. So I want us to look at just for a minute, a few minutes at this personal conversation between Jesus and Peter and to note three, three points, vital points. First of all, the incredibly searching and all important question that Jesus asks Peter and I think asks us. Secondly, to see his response, which is both humble and honest, open and honest. And thirdly, to see what Jesus then requires of him to demonstrate this quality of love that he has expressed. The first, Jesus' searching question. 
If it had not been for Peter's denial at the time of Jesus' arrest, no one would have doubted his devotion to his Lord and Master. So why did Jesus put this question to him? Obviously not for his own understanding, because Peter says, you know everything. But for Peter's, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. He wanted him to examine his own heart. The questions Jesus often asks us penetrate deeply into our souls and challenges us. What was his, to restore his, this is what I find so moving, to restore his worth. In his own heart, to know that he's still loved and useful and still has a dignity. Notice how Jesus addresses him. Simon, son of John, not Peter the rock. So what? he goes back to his name by birth, not by calling, in order to reinstate him. And I believe this question is one Jesus asks all of us who profess to be his followers. It concerns our love for him. It is not about our faith or our admiration for him, or what we have or may have done for him, but how we love him. Remember Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount about many who say, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy, drive out demons, and do miracles? It's a very challenging thought. And he said, I don't know you. Because he knows our heart. He knows whether we love him or whether we're doing this for our own sake and for... Um, to be patted on the back by other Christians. Wonderful when it comes from the heart. But it's love that makes things come alive. Paul says that without love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I can do all sorts of things, even raise the dead. And if I haven't got love, I'm nothing. That's incredibly challenging. And John recalls uh, the rebuke to the church at Ephesus. After Jesus, the, the risen, ascended Lord, speaks to the church at Ephesus and says, I, I know your works. They're great. What you've done is good. Theologically, they were absolutely A1. Morally, they were no, no problems. No, no problems at all. You know, that one church has, all the other churches have something they got wrong in the area of their knowledge of the Bible or, or knowledge of the truth or, then, or, or their behavior, but not Ephesus. This one thing I have against you, you have lost your first love. Love is what makes things work. Love is what demonstrates the power of the resurrection in our lives. Without love, our deeds are, own, are for our own glory. But if we lack love, if we lack love, we love, lack everything. So his question to Peter is vital. It searches our hearts. Jesus doesn't ask us whether we worship or pray regularly because love ensures that we will do it genuinely and from the heart. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about what people think of us or uh, whether we're doing it rightly, you know, I've got the right hat on or whatever. Dear Christian friends, uh, we've such good reason for our, uh, allowing this question of Jesus to, to search our hearts. As we look back on the, on the past week, and it happens to me at the end of every day. Lord, I'm here again. You must be fed up with me. I, can't, I keep messing up. It's that, you know, that angry word or the sullen look, or things which I, uh, my conscience told me were wrong and things that I ought to have done that I should have done, the compassion I should have shared, should have shared the love I should have given to people. 
or complaining about my lot in life and speaking ill, really, of the providence of God or the God of providence. I need to hear his words. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? I need to ask if I loved him more. And I do ask this when I go to bed at night and pray. If I loved you more, Lord, would I have sinned so much? Would I have not shown more of you to the world? Have people seen Christ in me and been drawn to him because of my witness? All the wasted hours, the idle gossip, the unfruitful conversations. How can I know that I love him? Well, you only have to look at someone. We were discussing this on Friday at our group and saying, and, and Molly said, you know, when I was young, <laughs> her husband died many years, many years ago. She said to me, when I was young, I couldn't stay away from him. I couldn't stop thinking about him. I constantly wanted to be in his presence. This is about the person she loved. She wasn't a Christian then. But now she's saying that's what it should be with, with Jesus. He should never be out of our thoughts or our, our hearts. We love him so much. And how do we respond and love his, his family? If we, if we loved him, we would love his friends. How sad it is to see Christians who fall out and don't talk to each other or don't resolve things. Even David Watson, bless his heart, in his latter years as he was dying, said, I need to put some things right with some people. I think I've hurt them. He wrote letters, put things right. And this man had been used so wonderfully by God and challenged so many people. And I think it's true of all of us if we search our hearts. We know we've let people down. We haven't been as we should be. John says in his first letter, and I think, you know, he's just an amazing man. He lived to old age, of course. But, and someone said uh, when he came into one of the congregations, any word from you, brother John? Yes, little children love one another. And somehow his whole message got reduced to this one overwhelming theme of John, the apostle of love that we must love one another. In this, the world will believe because they see the resurrection power of Jesus manifested in the quality of our love. And in this case, we see now Paul's honest and humble answer. And there are different words for love. It's a strange thing in English. We only have one word for loving ice cream, loving our children, loving our wives, loving our jobs or whatever. But they have a, a several, several words. And Jesus used the first word, the, the first word Jesus uses is a word that was hardly ever used in Greek before the time of Jesus and his demonstration of it. It's sacrificial and unconditional love, agape, and it's seen most clearly on the cross. Peter had once boasted that even if all the, you heard it in that sense, all the other disciples denied him, he would never, never do so. So it's interesting to see the way Jesus speaks to him. He says to him, using the word agape, and it says truly love here. That's what, because we haven't got another word. So he says, do you truly love me more than these? Because he boasted more than these. And he says, Lord, I love you. And he used the word filio, which means affection. Genuine affection. It is love, but it's not unconditional, sacrificial love. So Jesus then asks him a second time, and this time he drops the words more than these. <laughs> he just says, do you agape me? And he comes back with the same word, filio, I love you. You know, Lord, everything, I love you. 
And then Jesus asks him a third time, and this time Jesus uses the word philia. No longer agape, but philia. Do you love me? In, the, in our translation we heard here, it, stop, it drops the word truly. It, what it means is it's using another word. That's his honesty. I don't know how much I love you. I don't certainly love you. It's, it's proved by my denial of you. I don't love you like you love me. I can't say, Lord, I'd die for you, which he did in the end. He just says in honesty and humility, you know everything. You know that I'm fond of you. I deeply love you with human love. And although Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, how much more was Jesus grieved when he denied him three times? It reminded him of that. Three times he denied him, three times Jesus reinstates him. He, he doesn't appeal when he says he loves him to anything that he's done or said or worshipped or whatever. He only applies, applies this to the unbelievable knowledge of Jesus about us. I remember George Burton, who I worked for, he's saying to people, you only know yourself truly when it's just between you and God on your bed at night. Then that's when you're not playing up to your friends or your Christian friends. You and God alone. And you say, Lord, I failed him so, so many times. <sighs> Forgive me, Lord. But say, Lord, I know I failed. I know I've let you down. I know I've failed to do what you asked me to do sometimes. But you know, my heart, I do love you. I keep having to say this. I do love you, Lord. I can't say I love you like you love me. But I love you. And so we see, thirdly, the demonstration that Jesus required. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. I'm sure you can make a lot of those different those different words that talk about the different levels of pastoral care. You see, he first talked to them about fishing, which is evangelism, by doing the great the miracle of the great catch. Now he changes the metaphor to one of feeding. Feed Christ's flock. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached 3,000 people came to Christ that day. That was the fishing. They were formed into a community of faith. And I remember when I last came here, that's what you were looking at. The end of Acts chapter 2. And it's a brilliant thing. And seeing this, this wonderful care and love that came as a result of building up the church. And we see how wonderful it is that we are called not just to bring people to Christ, but to nurture them and keep them. I remember someone said he, how moved he had been after something like 30 years when he had come to Christ at a camp. And he said, John Stott had prayed for him every day. We know how busy that guy is. But he had led him to Christ and he prayed for him and, and sent some notes to him and all sorts of things to just encourage him. And I thought, we've got to stick with it. You know, we have to build people. You know, Paul says, his great longing says, that Christ may be formed in you. I will strive all I have, all the energy in me. That's, that's the love, the quality of love. As Bill Hybels calls it, a love of another kind. It's agape love. It's sacrificial love. It's, it's unconditional love. It's when they, they falter or fail, your friends, you still stay with them and say, I still believe that God loves you absolutely. 
and will restore you if you've fallen, like he's restored me. So I just want to say that. Love knows no quitters. Love keeps the energy going. It, it keeps our loyalty going. It's, it's, it doesn't fade out and say, oh, I've had, I had a, too much of this, or I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm getting a bit fed up with the, this particular church, or whatever. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like that. Love is utterly committed to Christ and to his people and wants to feed and do good to all people. We're not all called to be pastors, but we're all called to use our gifts to bring about the, the maturity of the body of Christ. When all, Paul says to the Ephesians, when all is working together in the body, then the, the body grows up into the likeness, the maturity of Jesus Christ. So finally, just to say that, you know, to me, if you look back to the history of the Christian church, all those people who've been the great pioneers and missionaries, and we're not just talking about them, but just we are, we are aware of them, and those people who've had tremendous changes in social um, conditions of, of, you know, like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and all sorts of people, you know, lots and lots of people. Uh, it's, it's invidious to use, start to use names because there's so many people who've been, had an amazing change. But all the thing, the thing that they have in common is they were great lovers of Jesus. And just to, to mention, at Spring Harvest, we heard a man called Don Stevens who started the, uh, the Mercy Ships 40 years ago as a result of a challenge because of the pain he had in having a disabled child. That child is now 42, and he says to him, I never stop telling this disabled child, with all the amazing things Mercy Ships has done, fantastic. Well, I can't go into it, but it's just really amazing things in Africa. Changed governments and attitudes and left hospitals. They're in the Cameroons for eight months at the moment. Just the pictures. We broke down and says, even my little grandson, oh, I, I won't get one of those great goiters, you know. No, because you've got, if it happened, started to happen to you, you get treated straight away. But there they, the ship goes in and transforms the lives of thousands of people. And a little girl was healed some years ago saying, I want to come back as a nurse. I'm doing well at school now. And she was within inches of death when, when they treated her. And I want to work on the mercy ships. I love Jesus and I want to help other people too. I thought, this is what it's about. How much we may boast about the things that, which, which are good in our, in our church life. The most important thing that Jesus looks at is the heart, and that do we love him. And we heard this a remarkable woman, Hei Wu, who became a Christian in China when she got out of China, like her husband had become a Christian, but he was martyred, and she nearly died in, in prison there. And it's just, she told testimony this and i'm not going to go into it again this is disgusting you shouldn't tell people this what happened to her and how she was liberated and this very gentle elderly lady now quiet person who's now living in south korea happened to escape and get to south korea how she was called by jesus to plant a church in this terrible conditions where they can't even mention the name of jesus they put um, he said jesus i want you to plant a church where in the toilets I can't do that, Lord. And, this, and the interpreter said, and God said nothing. She did. These six women came, she led to Christ. They, they, you know, and she sang Amazing Grace in, in Korean. And it was, you know, I don't think it was a dry eye in the place. 3,000 people, they're all bloody. 
because you should say this is what it's all about. North Korea is the, the, the most, um, where the greatest persecution in the whole of the world is in North Korea, apparently. That's what they said. I believe them. So there's never been so many, no, nowhere has the, the Bible been buried more than in North Korea. 100,000 Christians there can't mention the name of Jesus. They had to whisper it. And they bury their Bible, wrap it up under the ground. And at night, they take it out. They read it by the light of a candle. Some of our people haven't touched their Bibles for years. Not here, present company, but Christian people I come across, oh, yes, I think well, maybe I haven't got a Bible. And these are hungry for the Word of God. This is the love of Jesus seen and demonstrated. So I'm going to just finish. Sorry, I've gone on too long, and Gaynor will tell me off. <clears throat> and we, we can say, you know, when, when John... When Jesus challenged uh, Peter, and I'm going to cut this short now, um, he knew that Jesus had called him. The, the last F is following, follow me. You know, what about John? No, you're going to lay down your life for me. And he knew this because he said it in his second letter. I know that my days here on earth are numbered and that I am soon to die as the Lord Jesus Christ clearly told me. And he exhorts his readers to stand firm, commending them, although you, because they were second generation Christians, although you have not seen him, you love him and rejoice in him with exceeding great joy, with inexpressible and glorious joy. Why did, Pe why did Peter love him so much? Because he realized how much Jesus had loved him and given his life for him. We love, said John, because he first loved us. If we love Christ, we should never be ashamed to speak for him, witness for him, work for him, live for him, die for him. And I end with a little story. I think I got it from Charles Spurgeon years ago. So it always touched me because it's a Victorian times. It says, a man said a thoughtless, ungodly English traveler to a North American Indian Christian, why do you make so much of Christ and talk so much of him? What has he ever done for you? And the Indian said nothing but made a small circle of twigs and set fire to them, and put a worm in the centre of the circle, and watched until it was about to die. It was writhing in agony. Then he rescued it from the flames, and he held it to its, his breast. And turning to the stranger said, Do you see this worm? I was that perishing creature. I was dying in my sins, helpless and hopeless, on the brink of eternal fire. It was Jesus Christ who put out his arms of grace and rescued me from eternal destruction. It was he who placed me, a poor sinful worm, near his heart of love. Stranger, that is why I talk of Jesus Christ and make so much of him. I'm not ashamed of this because I love him. And if we know anything of the love of Christ, may we have the mind of this North American Indian. Indeed, may we never think that we can love Christ too much or live for him too enthusiastically. I think of all the things that will surprise us most on the resurrection morning when we see Jesus face to face is why we didn't love him more or serve him better. Amen. Lord, I, I just thank you so much for the example of people who've mentored us, people that we read of in the scriptures who followed you 
because they loved you deeply from their hearts. Help us too, when you put the searchlight into our hearts, to have that same love for you that will enable us to prove the power of your resurrection as we love others and the world for your sake. Amen.